We're on the record. I'm WIPR reporter John Lee, filling in for Sheila Cast today. In 1984, the Anne Arundel County Fair moved from Sandy Point State Park to a permanent location near Crownsville, Maryland. The fair had been bringing together residents for food and fun since 1952, and that year promised to be no different. But on that cool night in late September 1984, very few fairgoers were likely aware of the new venue's neighbors, a quiet, isolated campus just across the street. There, the Cransville Hospital served for decades as a mental health facility and the only such facility for black people in the state between its creation in 1911 and desegregation in the 1960s. Perhaps there's a potent metaphor here. On one side of the road, the community's fairground. On the other side, the secluded care facility where forgotten patients often faced mistreatment. A new book by journalist Antonia Hilton traces the history of Crownsville Hospital, the struggles and the triumphs of its patients, the lives of its staff and medical personnel, and what this singular institution tells us about mental illness, racism, and community in America. The book is called Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. Hilton is a Peabody and two-time Emmy Award-winning correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. Antonia. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning. Who were the patients of Crownsville Hospital, and how did they end up there? Crownsville's story begins with an almost biblical tale. Twelve men, twelve nameless men, are transferred from a white-only hospital to the woods in Anne Arundel County. And there they meet a doctor named Robert Winterode, who brings them into the forest and requires them to build their own mental hospital from the ground up. So when they first become Crownsville patients, there actually is no Crownsville. There is no hospital ward at all. There's a big field and they need to start clearing a road. They need to move railway tracks. They need to dig and pour cement to construct a foundation. And they do the backbreaking work of constructing these huge brick buildings that still stand in Anne Arundel County if you drive down Crownsville Road uh, to this day. Um, And week after week, the hospital and the administration, they're bringing in new patients. And what they really do is construct a farm colony, a plantation, in which the patients are doing a whole lot of free labor that's offsetting the cost of their own care. And after they hammer all these buildings into place, they walk into them in 1912 as the very first patients. And this was not situation normal. I mean, none of the other mental hospitals, institutions in Maryland did, were the patients expected to build them. I mean, that, 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 that was only at Crownsville. Only at Crownsville. And the patients who were at Crownsville, they were not simply patients who were mentally ill, correct? I mean, Crownsville became something of a, you, you wrote that it became something of a dumping ground, right? That's right. It, it really is seen as almost a receptacle um, a place where black people who are non-conforming or undesired for any reason at all c- could potentially end up. So there are people there with legitimate mental health diagnoses or with cognitive um, or learning delays. Um, then and th- That ranges from adults all the way to very small children uh, who live on the wards with grown men um, for years before that changes. Um, But there are also all these stories that I uncovered of patients brought to the institution 
for very strange reasons, including one man brought from Baltimore who's picked up by a supervisor and authorities because he's overheard with a British accent. And they don't believe that there could be a a black person with a British accent, that he must be making it up. So they bring him to Crownsville. It turns out after a black employee investigates who this man is, why he's been here for so many years, that he was born in London and was a jockey and just picked up one night after he'd fallen on hard times in Baltimore. Um, I tell the story of an employee discovering the records of a patient who was brought to Crownsville after cutting a white person off in traffic. Uh, And, you know, these are not just stories in the very beginning of the 20th century, Um, you know, decades in which we might like to think we're very far removed. All the way up until the 60s, there's the story of the Elkton Three, three civil rights protesters who refused to leave a white-only establishment, a restaurant in Elkton, Maryland, get picked up by the police and eventually committed to Crownsville and labeled as insane for their desire to, to try to integrate a restaurant, to try to eat at this establishment. And you see that the hospital really just becomes this place that's so much bigger than, you know, traditional mental health care treatment. It really is becoming a dumping ground for black Americans who can't seem to make it with the status quo, who aren't wanted. I mean, even children who are dropped off at the institutions by by parents who can't care for them. Um, It kind of just starts to bring in and, and try to manage all kinds of social dysfunction And it's not until the 50s and 60s that the place starts to integrate and you start to see these signs of change. And you talk about the the growth of the population. I mean, what was Crownsville initially made for? How many people were supposed to be housed there and how many ended up there over the years? Well, first, it's really a farm colony with shacks that can only sustain a couple hundred people. Mm -hmm. Um, But as the facility expands. They have space for a 1,000 or so people, then 1,500 or so people. Um, But the hospital at its peak has 2,700 people living in it. So there are hundreds more people on each floor than there are supposed to be um, for much of the middle part of the 20th century, so the 50s, 60s or so. Um, There are two patients sleeping per bed, so people sleeping in twin beds head to foot. Uh, That includes children and grown adults. You know, and this is an environment that, according to the psychiatrists that I've spoken to and to employees who were there, could often breed mental illness faster than it could cure it. Um, This was not the kind of place that families thought true care was happening. In fact, Crownsville becomes something of a boogeyman, um, a threat that black families start to use. If their kids misbehave, oh, we're going to send you to Crownsville. If, you know, you don't get your homework done, we're going to send you to Crownsville. And, and that may be funny, but it comes yeah. from this knowledge, right? They, they hear the whispers, they hear and understand the rumors of what's happening in this place and just how horrible for many decades it was to be there. Sure. And, and the fear that anyone, if you find yourself in the wrong situation, can be hauled off and sent to Crownsville. Oh, yeah. Um, and in fact, police officers would threaten young black kids with that when they'd mm. find them at Cars Beach, um, you know, messing around or staying out late at night at parties. They would say to them, I'll get 25 or 50 bucks if I commit you right now. Um, and that is a, a story that's not confirmed in records, but is passed on and told by families all over Baltimore and the Annapolis area as and something that's really stuck in their in their minds and, and informs some of what I would call kind of the present day lack of trust and, and gap in in communication and care between the black communities in the state and uh, mental health care providers. 
This is On the Record. I'm John Lee. I'm speaking with Antonia Hilton, author of Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum, which untangles the history of Crownsville Hospital, Maryland's only mental health hospital for black patients until its desegregation in the 1960s. The Baltimore Sun published an expose in March of 1949, almost 75 years ago, that began, quote, Maryland's shame, the worst story ever told by the Sun Papers. Maryland's overcrowded state mental hospitals are breeding chronic insanity faster than they can cure it. The five tax-supported mental institutions were built to house 6,000, but already nearly 9,000 are packed into their gloomy, frequently foul-smelling rooms, end of quote. Uh, To what extent was the suffering at Crownsville the result of racism toward patients and how much of it came out of prejudice towards really anyone with mental illness? It's a great question, and it's something that I I clarify every time I I talk to people about this story, because in that period, in the 40s um, and before, we're really in the dark ages in terms of mental health care treatment. They don't have a whole lot of tools. The, The miracle medications, the antipsychotic medications that we now are so familiar with, they hadn't arrived from Europe yet. And so many of these institutions were overcrowded, filthy, abusive, patients being strapped or left in secluded rooms for hours or days on end. Um, And that's for people of all backgrounds and in every corner of this country. And uh, what really makes Crownsville different um, that I've found is that the the lack of funding, so the differential uh, decisions the state starts to make about how much money or how many steps they'll take to alleviate that kind of suffering, and then also the amount of work patients are doing during the day in addition to living in those conditions. And so, you know, this is a situation in which patients of every background are suffering, but the black patients, the patients who are seen as often by white doctors, slightly less than human. I mean, that's the whole reason they're in a separate institution in the first place, um, that the state sees them differently and plans to, from the very beginning, do less for them. And so it's a situation that is poor across the board, but Crownsville is consistently underfunded and and less supported um, by local lawmakers, by local leadership, and by the, their own administration that's leading the institution at that time. And some of the descriptions in that uh, piece from 1949 give you a very bleak picture of what's happening to Crownsville's patients. And they point out things like the equivalent institution not very far down the road, Rosewood, which is taking care of white children at the time, that they have all kinds of suffering going on, but they are operating a school, which is uh, mandated by law. If you have children in an institution like that, you need to be giving them an education five days a week. Crownsville wasn't even attempting to run any kind of school for the many children there. So you see all these ways in which it's terrible for everyone, but there is a uh, a very clear lack of effort and decision to, in, in many cases, not even attempt to try to operate Crownsville, um, consistent with what was known at the time to be the best of what was available. You write quite candidly about your own family's experience. You yeah. weave that into this book, uh, Experience with Mental Illness. Um, now, what was it like to work on this subject, which you have such a you know intimate relationship with? Um, it was all of the emotions. It was dizzying. It was um, very trying and exhausting at times. It was rewarding. Um, it made me feel less alone. Um, 
So, you know, and I write about a few members of my family who, you know, historically had interacted with the mental health care system or been sent to places like Crownsville. But I also write at the very beginning in the introduction about my relationship to an immediate family member of mine suffering with these issues now and what was happening to them when they tried to access care in the current moment. And I, I do that for a few reasons to try to show the reader you know, that I have a personal connection here and that I feel as a journalist I should disclose that so you know that I'm not writing this just from a place of curiosity but also a place of of pain and personal experience. Um, but also because uh, when you look at the mental health care system we've all been left with, or in many communities, your largest provider of mental health care services is your local prison and jail, hmm. where many communities of color, not just black communities, say that they go to emergency rooms or they go to inpatient treatment centers and they cannot find a provider who looks like them, who speaks their language, who truly seems to care about their specific life experiences and that they feel discarded by these systems. You know, in order to imagine something better for us all or to figure out just where we went wrong. I think we first need to understand our history. And when you see what happened at Crownsville, it really helped me understand the current moment and what my loved one was facing when they went into these institutions that just seemed so woefully unprepared to talk to a black person suffering with a, a psychiatric disorder and, and, and the ways in which uh, the history of race and racism in this country was very present in all of their interactions in that care. Um, it all was, it was just a very full circle moment. Um, and I worried for a time that it was going to throw me off of my game, that I wouldn't be able to finish this book, frankly. Mm. But then I think that the anger for, that I felt uh, and just the fury that I felt made me recommit to it and, and made me realize I think other people have experienced this and they want to talk about it. We need to take a short break here on the record on WIPR. My guest is Antonia Hilton, author of Madness, Race, and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. I'm WIPR reporter John Lee in for Sheila Cast. When we're back, how the legacy of Crownsville Hospital lives on. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm WIPR reporter John Lee sitting in for Sheila Cast. From 1911 into the 1960s, Crownsville Hospital in Anne Arundel County was the only available medical facility for black Marylanders struggling with severe mental illness. To tell the story of the people who lived and worked at Crownsville Hospital, award-winning reporter Antonia Hilton interviewed former patients and combed through the archives her debut book is Madness, Race, and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. Antonia, historian and community organizer Janice Hayes-Williams has been organizing Say My Name ceremonies in honor of those who have died at Cransville. Here's a clip from a February 2021 visit to the Cransville Patient Say Cemetery. My name, Robert Hayes. I was here. Say my name. Baby Taylor. I was here, say my name, I was here, say my name, say my name. 
That song was written and performed there by Scotty Preston, co-founder of the Friends of the Crownsville Cemetery. Now, what motivates community members like Scotty and Janice to return again and again to Crownsville Hospital now 20 years after it closed? Well, I think it is this this desire to make Annapolis and Maryland more broadly listen and reckon with what happened at Crownsville. There are more than 1,700 people buried mostly as numbers, not names, in that cemetery. And when you arrive, it's near what people would know as the Bacon Ridge natural area. You actually wouldn't know it was a cemetery at all. You go up this sort of small hill and you see this sort of circular area carved out in the middle of the woods and there's a cross and that's really the only sign that something sacred or or spiritual happens here. And then you see these disorganized stones that have these numbers and you realize this was where these souls were left. And many of them uh, were in these early decades at the hospital. One of the things I found in my research and Janice found as well in her work finding every single one of those names over the last 20 years was that as, as more and more black people came to work at the hospital and connect with the patients, they got them out. They got them connected back to their families so that they could be buried somewhere else, somewhere that took proper care of, of black people. And it's seen by the black community there and certainly by the women who run uh, the Friends of the Crownsville Cemetery group as a truly sacred place. Um, you know, for years, Scotty and Janice have, doing, have been doing this with a small audience. I mean, 10 people standing in front of them. Lately, it, it's been hundreds of people. Um, and I think that tells you something about uh, the community's growth, their eagerness, their excitement to bring this history to the surface and to give uh, the people buried there their proper recognition. And now the county is more formally working with them to build a proper memorial to write all of the names there on the cemetery grounds so that people can pay their respects and really understand what happened. You were back in Crownsville just last week, right, for for an event. Uh, tell me about that. It was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so I was there uh, to, you know, really kick off the book tour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a first-time author, you're expecting the usual stuff to sign some books and answer people's questions and shake some hands. Um this was not that. It was it was like church, really. Um, and the community surprised me. So many of the former patients and employees came. Uh, they brought their children, their grandchildren, so that you know they could sit and understand just how big a piece of their heart, their life, this institution was. There were family reunions going on, friends who hadn't seen each other in decades, tears and laughter, um, a choir that performed uh, a beautiful selection of songs. And I was so moved um, and I was so grateful that I had the chance to not just sit up there and talk myself about my own research, but actually to really give them the stage and the chance to, um, you know, say to leaders like County Executive Stuart Pittman um, and delegates who were in the audience, you know, we're watching. We know you have all these plans for what this land could be and we are here and we have a say in what it's about to become. And I thought that that was really beautiful. That's Antonia Hilton, an award-winning journalist and podcast host. On the record on WIPR, I'm John Lee filling in for Sheila Cass today. We're talking about Hilton's book about Maryland's Crownsville Hospital and its sordid history. 
uh, you call this book uh, a celebration of oral history. How extensively did you rely on oral history to tell your story? Oral history is the heart of the book, I think. Um, and that's not to say that, that that I elevated it necessarily over different types of other types of sources, but to say that you can't cover communities like this without practicing oral history. And, you know, the reasons, there are a whole number of reasons for that. But the first one is, if you just rely on the records of a place like Crownsville, a place that systematically denied black people the opportunity to work there, where doctors had very openly racist beliefs about the people they were there to serve, well, if you just use their letters and their reports, you know, you are not telling the truth. You're not actually telling the story. You know, people think that the memory is unreliable or that oral accounts aren't entirely accurate, but the same way that a bigoted person would write their bigoted thoughts down in a letter or type it up in a uh, on their typewriter in a report. I mean, all sources can become infected with people's personal biases. Um, but the oral history provides you these really all the kinds of moments and interactions that no one even writes about in a clinical report. And certainly in a hospital that was so focused for many decades on on getting its patients to do labor and taking notes associated with all of that, um, to get the side of their emotional and interior lives, you you just have to talk to people. You close the book uh, interrogating the the racist discrepancies in mental health care today. Uh, you highlight Jordan Neely, who was killed by a passenger in a New York City subway in 2023. Uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams later said that if Neely had received uh, more mental health assistance, his death could have been prevented. Uh, how much change has there been from the way society treats black people with mental illness today you know, versus the decades of Crownsville's worst conditions? That is the major question at the heart of the last few chapters. And what I can tell you is if you ask the black psychiatrists and doctors who worked at Crownsville or places like it or who are leading institutions today, for example, Dr. Tammy Benton, a very famous black psychiatrist working in the Philadelphia area, they tell you that race is very much impacting all kinds of decisions that are made every day about care and about who gets labeled as a patient or as a criminal, who gets labeled as deserving of a second chance or as irredeemable, who is going to get that call, that follow-up after they come to an emergency room presenting as being in the midst of a mental health care crisis. Uh, Dr. Benton has found that more than 50% of black children who come to ERs in the United States suffering actively in the middle of a mental health crisis, and more than half of them fail to get connected to ongoing care. So even though they've come to an ER, they don't get a therapy appointment next week. No one's calling them and connecting them to a psychiatrist who could maybe give them a medication that they need to get stabilized. And so there are all these racial discrepancies in care. And they believe that in many ways we've we've failed not just black people, but actually all of us. I mean, even very wealthy Americans, people with the best insurance, are reporting that in cities like New York, they're on long waiting lists to find a therapist or a psychiatrist, or their kids are on long waiting lists because there are so few pediatric psychiatrists working in this space. Uh, If you're in a rural area of the country, you're in even worse luck. And so it's not working for anyone, but it's really not working for the least among us, the, the least resourced. And that disproportionately means communities of color and immigrant communities in the U.S. And so there's this, there is right now 
a community of doctors of color kind of trying to scream from the rooftops to tell us we need to do something, we need to change something, we need to build a better world for this younger generation coming up behind us that is reporting that all they have is school and home and their phone, (laughs) that a lot of them are lonely and really isolated, that they're worried about climate change and scared that they don't have a future in America, uh, that we need to listen to them and do something for them. Otherwise, the crisis is going to be a whole lot worse than what we're seeing in our towns, on, in our subways, in our cities. So we're kind of at this moment where we need to decide, well, are we going to do something about it? Are we going to have this conversation finally? Antonia, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Antonia Hilton is author of Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. She's a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning journalist and podcast host. You can find more about her book at the On the Record page at WIPR.org. I'm WIPR reporter John Lee, and for Sheila Cast, glad you're with us. Come back tomorrow.